Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on a shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from NHK Japan, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, and Radio Havana Cuba. We will begin with NHK World Radio Japan. On Tuesday, members of the U.S. Congress arrived in Taiwan. They were brought in on a U.S. military aircraft, which China considered an escalation of tensions. In Thailand, a court ruled that calls for reform of the monarchy are an attempt to overthrow the Constitution. India hosted a regional security meeting on the situation in Afghanistan. The World Health Organization and the United Nations launched a polio vaccine in Afghanistan with the support of the Taliban. The Japanese nuclear safety regulator is investigating a nuclear power plant which has damaged foundations. French President Macron announced plans to build six new nuclear reactors to help meet the goal of carbon neutrality. NHK Japan Taiwan media are reporting that members of the U.S. Congress arrived Tuesday on a U.S. military aircraft. China has strongly condemned the news. Broadcaster TVBS says members of both the U.S. House and Senate landed in Taipei. It showed footage of the plane that reportedly brought them. Their names and purpose of their visit were not disclosed. Taiwan's foreign ministry says the American Institute in Taiwan is arranging the group's schedule. The ministry did not provide further details. It said an explanation would come later. The visit follows one in June when U.S. senators also came on a U.S. military aircraft. President Tsai Ing-wen met them at the airport. It's unusual for U.S. military aircraft to land on Taiwan, which has no formal diplomatic ties with the U.S. A Chinese defense ministry spokesperson issued a statement on Tuesday night. It warned the U.S. to immediately seize what it called destructive actions, leading to an escalation of tensions in the Taiwan Strait. It urged the U.S. to stop sending wrong signals to Taiwan independence forces. A spokesperson for the Chinese military said a combat readiness patrol had been conducted toward the Taiwan Strait. The spokesperson said the operation was necessary to safeguard China's sovereignty. Turning now to Thailand, the Constitutional Court has ruled that calls by pro-democracy activists for reform of the country's monarchy are an unconstitutional attempt to overthrow the institution. The court on Wednesday ordered the three main activists and their associates who demanded the reform in August of last year to refrain from making any more such demands. Since July of last year, Thailand has seen a series of anti-government protests, mostly by young people. 
Along with the resignation of the current administration, the protesters have been demanding the abolition of the law that makes it illegal to defame the royal family. They also want a smaller royal budget. Even debating royal reform has long been a taboo topic in Thailand. One of the defendants, Panasaya Siti Jirawatanagung, said the ruling was not acceptable. She said on Twitter, quote, I'm only asking for reform, unquote. A lawyer for the demonstrators said young people who are merely calling for reform of the monarchy in order to improve society could be charged with subversion in the future. India has hosted a regional security meeting on the situation in Afghanistan. Senior security officials from India, Russia, Iran and five Central Asian countries took part. China and Pakistan declined to attend. This is the time for close consultations amongst us, greater cooperation and interaction and coordination among the regional countries. The participants reportedly reviewed security in the region following the Taliban's takeover in August. The meeting aimed to address the country's security and humanitarian challenges and to support the Afghan people in promoting peace and stability. India traditionally has had close ties with Afghanistan and has provided development aid to the country. The Afghan economy is deteriorating as the government's overseas assets have been frozen. This has resulted in multiple humanitarian crises, such as food shortages. The World Health Organization and the United Nations Children's Fund launched a polio vaccination campaign in Afghanistan on Monday with the support of the Taliban. Afghanistan and neighboring Pakistan are the only countries in the world where polio has yet to be eradicated. Polio causes paralysis of the limbs and can lead to death. Young children in particular are susceptible to the infectious disease, but it's preventable through vaccination. In Kabul, health workers visited the homes of children to administer the vaccine. In the past, the Taliban have claimed that vaccinations were part of a Western plot. But on this occasion, the Taliban leadership expressed support for resuming the program. We are asking the Taliban to help us in this program because it's a good thing to do and we don't have any problems. The Taliban-run health ministry says 68,000 workers are going door-to-door throughout the country and aim to vaccinate 3.3 million children during the four-day campaign. Japan's nuclear safety regulator says it'll conduct an investigation at a nuclear plant in Niigata Prefecture. Inspectors will examine damaged pilings supporting a structure at the Kashiwazaki Kariwa facility. The plant's operator, Tokyo Electric Power Company, says the damage was discovered during work in July to improve the facility's earthquake resistance. Workers found problems with the structure next to a building housing the plant's number six reactor. All eight of the reinforced concrete piles under the structure were damaged. One of the piles had broken or deformed rebar. The other seven had cracks. TEPCO says each pile measures 1.8 meters across and 12 meters long. Members of the Nuclear Regulation Authority took up the matter at a regular meeting on Wednesday. 
The organization's chair said the damage may have been caused by a strong offshore quake in the area in 2007. The regulators agreed to carry out an on-site inspection early next year. The plant's number six and seven reactors have passed the necessary screenings to restart operations, but they remain offline pending further inspections begun in response to a series of serious breaches of anti-terrorism measures. French President Emmanuel Macron says his country will start building more nuclear reactors in order to meet its goals of achieving carbon neutrality by 2050. In a televised speech on Tuesday, Macron also said France wants to lessen its dependence on foreign countries for its energy supplies. Citing sharp increases in energy prices, he called for sustained efforts to save power and for energy investment to curb carbon dioxide emissions. Local media say the government and electric power companies are considering building six reactors. France last began reactor construction in 2007, after Japan's 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. Then-President Francois Hollande announced a policy to reduce the country's reliance on nuclear power. The Macron administration has been following the policy, but the leader has spoken about the need to take a different path. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 8.30 to 9 p.m. at 7.245 and 9.865 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times that I announce are now for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. On to Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. More on the French decision to begin building new nuclear power plants in an interview with Ian Lowe, an environmental scientist from Australia. He questions the need for increasing nuclear reactors given the unresolved problems with nuclear waste, the fact that it is more expensive than solar or wind energy, and the risk to the areas where they are located. Also, that reducing demand by efficiency is better than increasing energy supplies. The U.S. and China announced that they would work together to cut emissions in the next decade, though they announced no specific commitments. Inger Anderson, executive director of the United Nations Environmental Program, discusses the U.S.-China statement and the COP26 summit in general. COVID-19 infections are at a record high in Germany, and the World Health Organization says Europe is the only region where infections and death are increasing. The European Union is planning new sanctions against Belarus for bringing migrants to the EU border in Poland. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. In order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and slow global warming, countries are pledging to radically reduce the use of fossil fuels by the year 2050, give or take a decade. Now, the good news, the supply of renewables is growing. The bad news, it's still not enough to meet growing global power demands. Consumers are already noticing energy prices here in Germany are some of the highest in the world. Economists predict that this will only get worse unless traditional energy sources are tapped to meet the demand. For Germany, that could mean even greater reliance on Russian natural gas. Or it could mean reversing 
the 2011 decision to phase out nuclear energy, with the Greens hoping to be part of the new government. A return to nuclear looks unlikely. Across the border in France, well, the story could not be more different. The French president says that France will meet its carbon goals by 2050. Getting there will mean more, not less, nuclear energy. Ian Lowe, environmental scientist and emeritus professor at Australia's Griffith University. Because France, uh, as a result of the historic change, uh, still gets 70% of its electricity from nuclear, it's difficult to see how France could do without nuclear on any reasonable time scale. But uh, I don't think there's a strong case for increasing dependence on nuclear, uh, given that the outstanding problems of waste management, of securing fissile material, uh, and the economic issues remain unresolved, that uh, nuclear is more expensive and poses extra risks to the community. In 1976, uh, the UK Royal Commission, headed by Sir Brian Flowers, said it would be irresponsible to expand nuclear energy until we are confident that uh, the radioactive waste can be managed for what is effectively geological time. And Sweden and Finland are well down the track to do that. But the other countries that are using nuclear energy, the waste is still piling up, hoping that in some future decade, uh, governments will negotiate a way to manage it. And uh, in that sense, it's irresponsible to continue expanding nuclear energy until there is a proper process for managing the waste and securing it uh, from the biosphere. The reason that uh, nuclear is being closed down in the Northern Hemisphere is that just the running costs of uh, established nuclear power stations are greater than the cost of electricity from new solar and wind. And large-scale solar and wind, uh, even with enough storage to provide firm capacity, provides cheaper electricity than nuclear. But the other point I wanted to make is that we shouldn't be focused entirely on supply. We should be thinking about demand. I think it's entirely credible that we could live at the same standard of material comfort using half the energy we now do. And improving the efficiency of turning energy into services is still by far the most cost-effective way of reducing carbon. I remember the US energy analyst, Amory Lovin, saying, people don't want energy, they want hot showers and cold beer. And uh, our priority should be dramatically improving the technology that turns energy into the goods and services that we want. After Fukushima, you know, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel came out and said, we are getting out of nuclear energy. And there was, there was huge popular support for that. And if I compare where the public was then to where it is now in this announcement from Emmanuel Macron from France, there has been almost no public response here in Germany to the fact that its next door neighbor is about to go with more nuclear in, in the future. Are you, are you stunned that in the span of 10 years, we've seen public sentiment change so dramatically? Well, I think uh, after Fukushima, there was a recognition that if even a, an advanced and technically sophisticated nation like Japan is subject to the problem of regulatory capture so that uh, simple cost-effective ways of ensuring the safety of nuclear reactors are not implemented, then uh, there is a risk with nuclear that doesn't apply to solar panels or, or wind turbines. I think it's really up to uh, nations that are serious about decarbonising to sketch out a responsible plan that shows how consumers' needs are going to be met. Mm -hmm. And the International Energy Agency has a range of scenarios. Some show more nuclear, some say the same amount, some show less. They're all equally credible. 
it's a matter of policy choices by governments which path we go down. Yeah, and that path is going to be established somewhat when COP26 ends at the end of this week. We will see where we're headed. The US and China have announced a plan to work together on cutting their emissions in the next decade. The world's two biggest greenhouse gas emitters unveiled an agreement at the UN Climate Summit in Scotland that includes plans to reduce methane output, phase out coal consumption and protect forests. Though light on solid commitments, the pact could send a strong signal to some 200 other countries at the COP26 climate talks. Announcing the agreement, US Special Envoy John Kerry said China and the US may have their differences, but cooperation on climate was imperative. Let's take a closer look at that deal then with Dr Inga Anderson, who is the Undersecretary General of the United Nations and Executive Director of the UN Environment Programme. She joins us from COP26 in Glasgow. Let's start with your reaction to the US-China agreement. Is that job done? Can you all go home from COP now thinking uh, happy thoughts? No, I wish we could. Of course, we very much welcome the China-US deal and we're very happy that uh, this is now an indication of a desire to step up and to make things happen as we saw in the deal in the 2020s, which means before 2030, which is what we at the United Nations have been calling for. But we still have a long way to go and we need to stretch on finance, we need to stretch on ambition, we need to stretch on adaptation and obviously we need to make sure that we get the carbon markets, which is referred to as Article 6 in the Paris Rulebook. It, it does sound, it, it sounds very disappointing, uh, forgive me for, for, for saying so, because there are no targets. There was a, a, a draft uh, agreement uh, released on Wednesday, which contained lots of lots of talk but no actual firm targets one wonders is the planet any better off having had cop 26 well i will hope that at least the planet is aware and citizens across the world and youth across the world and decision makers across the world are aware that we cannot continue on the current trajectory if we do we will land at a 2.7 degree world and Believe you me, that is not a world we want to land on. Today we are living in a 1.1, 1.2 degree climate change already, and we are seeing it everywhere. Flooding, fires, droughts, inundations, etc. So I hope that, if nothing else, we have managed to raise the awareness. But look, it's not over yet. We still have a couple of days to go. And this morning, the president of the, of the, of the COP encouraged everyone to lean in to find compromise this cannot be about corner solutions this cannot be about not understanding that the most vulnerable are those that will suffer the most so we will keep pushing till the gavel goes down okay but it, it again let me go back to being disappointed because you talk about the difference between a, a 1.5 or, or, or a two degree world no decisions taken there, it seems to me, have done anything to, to, br to bring the likelihood of two to make the likelihood of two degrees go farther away. We are still looking to overshoot the Paris targets, regardless of how many schoolchildren uh, have told their parents, their governments, that this is a bad thing. 
No, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to sound naive. I will not claim that this is a big victory. We are not where we want to be. We at the United Nations Environment Programme have made it very clear. After all, we hold up the science in the Adaptation Gap Report. It's our numbers in the Emissions Gap Report that everyone is quoting. That is why we need to push more. Our job at the United Nations is to cajole, to encourage and to hold to account. Look, at this point, uh, we have a deal on methane. That's good. It's not good enough. For methane, it's good, right? We're going to reduce short-lived uh, short pollution, methane, uh, which is good. But we need to get much more serious. And this is what the Secretary General is calling for. He has called this an existential crisis for planet Earth. He has called this, this is a code red for humanity. It is time that right. humanity listens because we cannot continue. After all, this is a 26-year that we are meeting. We need a deal and we need ambition and we need it now. Understood. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Anderson. We wish you well. Dr. Inga Anderson from the UN Environment Programme. Now, the government here in Germany is under increasing pressure as COVID-19 cases soar across the country, reaching record highs. Take a look this morning. Infectious disease officials in Berlin reported more than 50,000 new cases in the latest 24-hour period, the highest so far. It's a nearly 50% jump from a week ago. And here's what's especially troubling for health authorities. 87% of intensive care beds across the country are occupied. And that figure is even higher in some regions like Bavaria. The total number of deaths, meanwhile, has risen to more than 97,000, with virologists warning that many more are expected. Germany's National Vaccination Advisory Committee now recommending that people below the age of 30 should receive only the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine as it has less chance of causing heart inflammation in younger people than other vaccines. The World Health Organization says that Europe is now the only global region where coronavirus cases and COVID-19-related deaths are increasing. The European Union says it's planning new sanctions against Belarus in response to what it describes as state terrorism and human trafficking. EU officials accuse Belarus of flying migrants in from the Middle East and then sending them to the border to cross into EU territory. Thousands of people are stranded between Poland and Belarus with reports of both countries attempting to push people back across to the other side. The groups are stuck between the two countries' security forces in freezing conditions. Poland has declared an exclusion zone and is not allowing aid workers or journalists into the area. For the first time, a top EU official has suggested building a wall or barrier along the bloc's external borders. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channel called DW News. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please, help me continue producing this weekly show which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet. We will conclude with Radio Havana, Cuba. 
Mexican President Obrador presented a plan at the United Nations Security Council to uplift 750 million people who live on less than $2 a day. Daniel Ortega was re-elected president of Nicaragua. The Israeli spyware Pegasus was used to spy on the staff of Palestinian civil societies that were recently outlawed by the Israeli government. Radio Havana, Cuba. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador has pitched a global plan that seeks to uplift about 750 million people who live on less than $2 a day, telling the United Nations Security Council, the UNSC, the effort would be financed largely by wealthy people and corporations. López Obrador said in a speech at a UNSC session on Tuesday in New York City that the plan would give the world's poor, quote, a dignified life thanks to voluntary contributions from the richest individuals, corporations, and countries. Never in the history of the Security Council has something substantial been really done for the benefit of the poor, but it's never too late to do justice, López Obrador said during his address. Today is the time to act against the marginalization, addressing the causes and not only the consequences. López Obrador's proposed program would be funded by an annual 4% contribution from the fortunes of the 1,000 richest people and corporations, plus a donation from G20 countries equivalent to 0.2% of their economies. The Mexican president said, quote, The spirit of cooperation is losing ground to the desire for profit, and this is leading us to slide from civilization into barbarism. We are moving forward alienated, forgetting moral principles of turning our backs on the pain of humanity. If we are not able to reverse these trends through specific actions, we will not be able to resolve any of the other problems affecting the peoples of the world. Supporters of the Sandinista National Liberation Front, the FSLN, took to the streets early Monday morning after the first official results of Sunday's elections were announced, giving the virtual victory to current President Daniel Ortega. The Sandinista rallies began after the closing of the polls and increased as the hours passed while waiting for the first bulletin provided by the Supreme Electoral Council, the CSE. Images of the celebrations were seen in Managua, the capital of the Central American country, as well as in the main cities of Leon, Granada, Esteli, and Chinandega. Brenda Rocha, the president of the CSE, revealed the first electoral results after midnight local time with a counting of nearly 50% of the votes. Based on this information, President Daniel Ortega, who is running for re-election for the 2022-2027 term, received 74.99% of the votes cast. The CS plans to release the final results of the elections on Sunday. An investigative report by a European rights group has revealed that the Israeli spyware Pegasus was, to u- was used to spy on the staff of Palestinian civil societies that were recently outlawed by the Tel Aviv regime. Last month, Benny Gantz, Israel's Minister of Military Affairs, said that the ministry had designed as terrorist organization the six following prominent Palestinian civil rights groups, including Adamir, Al-Haq, Defense for Children Palestine, the Union of Agricultural Work Committees, the Bisan Center for Research and Development, and the Union of Palestinian Women Committees. 
The move drew sharp criticism from several human rights watchdogs, the Palestinian resistance movement Hamas, the Arab League, and several American legislators also spoke out in denunciation of the designation. Back in July, a group of 17 media organizations revealed that Pegasus, developed by the Israeli hacker for hire company NSO Group, targeted across the globe human rights activists, journalists, lawyers, and leading political figures, including the French president. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though the podcasts have not been updated. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6000, 6060, or 6100. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with a podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 25th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.